It's a privilege for me to, uh, to open the word of God to his saints here in Chester. It's very humbling. Um, it's a serious matter when you open up sacred writ behind uh, the sacred desk and present it to his people. Um, what comes to mind when you think of the word Reformation? Reformation. What comes to mind? I think for many of us, it would be what happened in 1517 uh, with a monk named Martin Luther. Um, And we all know the fact where in 1517, he nailed his 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg and wanted to point out the problems that he saw with the teaching of the Catholic Church, the Roman Church. And um, so we, so I think a lot of us know of that event in history, and that is a great event. That really changed the course of history for all of us. And so we know that well, but uh, something to think about is that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for a man named Erasmus who... Just a year and a half prior to that day, that faithful day in 1517, um, he completed the Greek New Testament. And because he completed the Greek New Testament, Martin Luther had something to stand on that he could read, that he could study, that he could understand. And um, so when you think of Reformation, it's not one person who brings Reformation, but it's just not the Word of God by itself. It's It's God using the word of God, his written revelation in the life of a person, in the life of somebody who is convicted by what is said, who's challenged, who's humbled. Um, And that that's exactly what happened with Martin Luther. But so it is with Josiah. And I'm not talking about the one who just led our music although I hope there's a reformation in your life, but uh, so it was with Josiah in 2 Kings 22 and 23. If you want to turn there, I would encourage you to turn there so you're ready when we, when we hit the ground running. My wife and I have been going through the Old Testament, um, I mean, especially in the post or mid-COVID-19 days, it's been a great time for us, as I've shared in the past, to get together in the morning uh, with coffee, that's essential, right? And your Bible in hand. Uh, yeah, it's almost heretical to say, is it possible to read the Bible without coffee? But I don't want to go that far. But to uh, sit down, and we've been going through many books in the Old Testament, just feasting on what God has to say in the Old Testament to us. And it's opened my eyes, it's opened our eyes to who God really is. We think we we have got pigeonholed. We think we understand him so well by reading the new, and we do. But the Old Testament, I don't know if you know this, but the Old Testament is inspired and God-breathed as well. In fact, if you lived in the New Testament times, you would know the Old Testament very well. Uh, Shame on us when we don't really put a lot of priority on the Old Testament. And I uh, I know several of you have been going through the Old Testament uh, basically at the same pace that Missy and I have been and have been, have been astounded is what we come across. And also what, 
we're dumbfounded at. I mean, there, there are some things there you just say, I don't understand this, and it forces you to uh, dig deeper. So, so like Tim said last week, when he preached on the book of uh, Habakkuk, he said that, you know, God always doesn't act the way he thinks he will or the way he should. Um, you know, how could he use the Chaldean people to bring judgment on his people? Like, what in the world? This isn't right. This is wrong. Something is wrong. Well, it's not wrong. It's our thinking is wrong. So we have to really get our thinking tuned with the Word of God. So I, I definitely can't assume that we all know the history of the Old Testament because, you know, Missy and I and others have been going through it more detailed, more in-depth, and I just, um, it wouldn't be fair just to jump into the passage without giving you a little background of what we're dealing with here when we deal with King Josiah. Uh, Really, a quick Reader's Digest version of the history is you uh, you have King Saul, who the people really wanted, they got him, and they deserved what they got. You have David, and then you have Solomon. And for all of you, not just because I was going to say for you kids, but I think it's helpful for all of us. If you struggle with the order of the kings, just look at um, the syllables of the kings. Saul, one. You have David, two. You have Solomon, three. So that's an easy way to remember the order of the kings. And that's how I think. It's not rocket science. I need simple things like that. So we have Saul, we have David, we have Solomon. And then... Uh, the kingdom was uh, divided after uh, Solomon died. And you have uh, two men, Jeroboam, Rehoboam. Uh, Rehoboam was Solomon's son. And uh, well, basically, uh, Reader's Digest version, they, the, uh, the kingdom is divided. You have Israel with 10 tribes in the north. You have Judah with uh, two tribes in the south. And uh, so... Um, what you see in the northern kingdom is there's many kings. I didn't count them, but there's a lot of kings. Every king in Israel in the northern kingdom is bad. And there's some books, and your Bible might, might have charts or graphs, whatever, that lay out all the kings of Israel and Judah. And Missy and I were laughing at this, saying, you know, well, this king was bad. He was really bad. But then you get to, so, so the kings in the north were bad. And there are many of them. I think there's 19 of them, but I might be wrong. And, and don't hold me to that number. It doesn't matter. But um, so, so God brought the Assyrians in to take them captive. And he let some of the people stay there. And he let them practice some religion there, things like that. But then you have, and that was in 722 BC. But then you still have the southern kingdom with those two tribes. They're going on. They're continuing. And they had... It's you know somewhere between five and eight uh, good kings, and these terms, you know, once again, are relative. Good term, you know, good kings. Um, some are better than others. The ones that really come to mind who are really good is uh, Hezekiah and Josiah, especially, and there was Asa and, uh, and the others. But um, so, as Tim said last week, and I feel I'm repeating him a few times here, but I have to because what he said is true and it lines up with what we're talking about this morning, is the people in the south in Judah had a capital of Jerusalem. And they thought they were invincible because, well, Jerusalem is, in fact, God says it's what he chose and the temple of which, which he said, my name will be there. I mean, how can you utterly destroy and wipe out 
uh, Jerusalem. I mean, God's name is there. He, he's represented in the temple. Well, so they thought they were invincible. And you wouldn't believe, we're going to look at this this morning, you would not believe how sinful God's so-called God's people can actually be. This was astounding to us when we read this, and it still is even to this day. So uh, Josiah is the fifth from the last of the kings of Judah. Um, he's the last good one for sure. Um, and then the Babylonian captivity is on the horizon. Okay, so, so I hope you're with me. Now, the kings leading up to Josiah, and I just want to name a few because... Um, they were fresh in my mind, so it's easy, but also because they are very well known and they have characteristics I want you to know so we know the context and the flow as we go to Josiah. With Hezekiah, he would be the great-grandfather of Josiah. Hezekiah was a good king for the most part. Um, he made a lot of reforms. He did a lot of good things. At the end of his life, he, uh, he got proud, and that caused problems. Uh, then he uh, had Manasseh, uh, his son Manasseh reigned, and Manasseh was horrific. He, he brought you know, idol worship to a new high. He shed much, much innocent blood, which it doesn't go into detail. I have a few thoughts on that, but, and we might talk about it later. But he shed much, much innocent blood, which God hated, and he says it a few times. Uh, God hates that. And, but what's interesting, and I had forgotten this, and maybe you have too, or maybe you've never heard it. You know, Manasseh, the last two years of his life, he repented. And he was a godly man at the end of his life. So when we talk about Manasseh, don't just say, oh, well, he was a bad king. No, he turned out to be pretty good at the very end, his last two years of his life. And then um, he died, and then we have Ammon, his son. He, he reigned two years, um, and what's... What's interesting about that is his servants, uh, you know, killed him. And, though, and then the people who, who uh, killed uh, Ammon, uh, they were killed. So, um, so Ammon didn't last long. He wasn't on the scene. He was bad. He was really bad. Okay. If you look at those relative terms, he was really bad. Like the early years of Manasseh, his father. So um, then we come to Josiah. And the point of this sermon, if you're not, if you're not going to hear anything else, if you're going to tune you know, out and think about taking a nap, uh, just wait a minute and get this point. <laughs> the point here is how we look at God's word, the impact that it has on our lives is all that matters. And you'll see why I say this when we look at the life of Josiah. But so many times you and I, and we need to be humble about this, when we, when we approach the Word of God, we can look for loopholes, like Karl Marx said. We can look um, for loopholes when we read the Bible. We can think um, that there's a way out of it. We try to excuse it away. And that wasn't Karl Marx. That was somebody else. But, um, so anyway. So... The point here is when we come to the Word of God, are we really going to let God change our life the way He wants to change it? Okay, so, so the plan is to go verse by verse. Now there's, there's pretty much two chapters here, so we're going to have a jet tour of Second Kings uh, tw uh, 22 and 23. 
But we have to look at every verse, and we'll skip, we'll, we'll do it at a fast pace for some of it. Um, and if you're looking for, uh, for an outline, um, we will start that in a minute, so buckle up and wait for that outline to come, because this is uh, the first verses of this passage are really introductory. So if you have your Bibles, look at chapter 22, verse 1 and 2 with me, and we'll start reading. And then my goal is to comment on these passages okay, as we read them. Sometimes there'll be more comments, and other times there'll be very few. Okay, Josiah was eight years old. Okay, I'll stop right there. Who's eight years old? Do we have any eight-year-olds here? All right, we have a couple of potential kings right here, or queens. Um, So he was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedida, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And notice verse 2, he did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. Now you say, how could a king be eight years old? Well, they would have had tutors. They would have had helpers. Um, and it's interesting, from ages like 8 to 26, we don't know a lot about what happened in the life of Josiah. We really don't. It's pretty quiet for the most part. Um, but all we know is what's in verse 2 here. And just look at this. Think about your family heritage. Okay, We just looked, you know, looked at Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, and then, then we come to this young man. What influence, what godly influence could he have ever received from any of them? Uh, you know, being so young, you know, he didn't turn aside to the right or left. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father, David. You know, I do believe that God gives the inclination to believe in him and to walk in him. I can think, while I was preparing this, I was thinking of one person. He doesn't go to this church, so you don't have to wonder, yeah, who's Randy talking about, but... One person who he grew up to be a godly young man, and his you know it's not because he got it from his parents. So I really think that God does put the inclination to follow after him in in his heart. We think of people who were called to ministry from the womb. We have Isaiah, we have John the Baptist, we have others. So this this is the only explanation, one of the explanations that we can come to why he lived like this, why he had this attitude at such a young age. Um, okay. And it could have been the influence of, of a few people. There's only a few people named uh, Jeremiah. Prophet Jeremiah was a contemporary. Zephaniah was. And also Huldah the, pro, the prophetess, which we'll look at in a minute. So it could have been that one of them maybe came alongside young Josiah and said, man, he's, he's become the king at eight years old. We need to guide him. We need to help him. Okay. Uh, it's possible he sat on his grandfather Manasseh's lap at four or five years old and learned some things from repentance that he saw in Manasseh's life and Manasseh had to share with him. He could have sat on Manasseh's lap. I mean, four, four and five-year-olds can still learn the truth and remember things like that. So we don't know. Um, but it is uh, God who really ultimately does that work. Okay. Now I'm going to read verses 3 to 7. Follow along. And, um, 
So uh, 22, 3 to 7. Now, now in the 18th year of King Josiah, so he's 26, right? The king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. Okay, so just count the money. Verse 5. Let them deliver it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are in the house of the Lord to repair the damages of the house, to the carpenters, the builders, masons, for buying timber, for hewn stone to repair the house. Only no accounting shall be made for them, for the money delivered into their hands, for they deal faithfully. They were faithful workers. It reminds me of Acts 6, when they picked the deacons, the early deacons in Acts 6. They picked men who were faithful, not just any man who was a good businessman or something like that. They had faithful people working there. And frankly, you know, I don't know the background of how they got there, but we just know that for a fact. So 10 years into his reign, he sent Shaphan. I might say it differently during the sermon, Shaphan. Or Shaphan. I'll probably say Shaphan. He sends this man, Shaphan, okay, um, who was a scribe, to the temple and ask him to ask the high priest Hilkiah to count the money that people had given uh, under, Manasseh, under Manasseh in Second Chronicles 34 is a cross-reference for that. So they got the money under Manasseh, maybe the last two years of his, his life when he, repaint, he repented, I don't know. And he wanted the workers to get the money. Okay, all is well. Um, so there were workers in the temple, and we don't know why they were there. We don't know what caused them to you know, go there and to do repairs, but we know they were there. And, um, and by the way, there's a cross-reference passage uh, to this whole life of Josiah. Second Chronicles 34 and 35 has some, some more details that you wouldn't see here. Okay? We're not going to read that this morning, or, or you'd miss lunch for sure. So, okay, so Josiah says, hey, pay the workers for their work. And by the way, you can trust them with the money, okay? Now, the first part, uh, like part of the outline, if you want the three points, I'm going to give you one. The first point is discover the truth. Okay? Discover the truth. All of our walks of faith start with discovering the truth of the word of God. We can't become a believer in, in Christ if we don't know the truth. So we're going to look at verses 8 to 10. And this is actually comical. When I read the Old Testament, especially these passages in Kings and Chronicles, I find myself chuckling a lot because there's so many things that we can relate to practically. Like, oh man, yeah. Yeah, I could definitely see that happening, you know. So 8 to 10. Then, Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. They probably blew the dust off it. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, who read it. Shaphan the scribe uh, came to the king and, and brought back word to the king and said, your servants have, have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of, of the Lord. So that's what they should have been doing. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. So notice that, that word a, not the book, but a book. He found a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. Now stop right there. We'll stop there anyway. But 
Why didn't the high priest, Hilkiah, read the book? Why did he give it to the scribe? I mean, the high priest should have been reading the book. Anyway, that's just something I found funny. But finding the book or a book is kind of an afterthought here. Oh, yeah, we gave the workers the money that was in the temple, who were cleaning out the temple, doing the repairs. We gave them the money. Oh, and by the way, we found a book, you know? Um, and Shaphan reads the scroll to King Josiah. Um, now, we don't know if it was the entire Pentateuch, or which is the five books of Moses, or if it was just Deuteronomy. And um, so we don't know for sure. Um, there is something that happens later on that I found that is only referred to in Exodus. So I think it was more in Deuteronomy, but I doubt he would have sat there and read five books of the Bible to him in one, in one sitting. But don't come, you know, tell me afterwards and debate me over that, please. Okay, verses 11 to 13. Check this out. What impact does the word of God have in his life? Okay, verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he yawned. No, he tore his clothes, his robes, it says in Chronicles, I believe. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all, Jude- and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us. Because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written, written concerning us. In that culture, and not in our culture that I know of, maybe somewhere in the world they do this, but, our, but so in that culture, when they grieved or mourned, they ripped their clothes. They didn't care if they had on their best suit or robe or whatever. They, they were just mourning. They ripped it. Nothing was more important than mourning, like even the value of the clothes or the robe or whatever. And verse 13 sums up why was he so mournful? What made him react this way? Well, right in 13 it says, because he knew God's wrath was against them. He knew, you know, there's nothing more important for Josiah to know. God is not happy with In fact, he's mad at us. And we need to make changes. He simply uh, compared like we do when we read the word of God, he compared what he knew of the law, whether it was Deuteronomy or the whole law or Exodus and Deuteronomy, whatever. He read the law and he says, and he did an assessment in his mind. Ooh, we're not living like this. We're not living like God wants us to. And, and not, not suggests we do, but commands that we, we have to live this way. And, and I thought about this. This is the ultimate purpose of the law in our lives anyway, is it not? To point out the sin in our lives. And so it was here. He saw that he fell short. The nation had fallen short. And he recognized that as a leader of this whole nation, the surviving part of Israel, if you will, he was responsible to a holy God for what he did and how he uh, reigned over them. He took ownership of this. Oh, man, that's so important. He took ownership of this seriously. He was very sensitive, like his, his forefather David. Uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, that all that was 
you know, all that mattered to Paul was that he was pleasing to God. That's all that matters. And so it was with, with Josiah. Nothing else matters. And so it is for us. Nothing else matters than we are pleasing to God. You know, we play games. We are good at playing games with God and with each other. And I'm as guilty as the rest of us. But, you know, when it comes down to it, are we pleasing to God? Now, now I asked Russ to read uh, James 1 this morning uh, because one of the verses there talks about the word of God being likened to a mirror, right? Remember that? And we are to look in the mirror of, of the word of God and make changes. And when you get up in the morning, and I say this a lot, but uh, when you get up in the morning, you get to the mirror in the bathroom and you're usually shocked at what you look like. But everybody in this room made adjustments. They made changes. You all look good. You all look presentable. Trust me. Nobody looks, let me look around a little bit. No, nobody looks like they just woke up and are all disheveled and came to church that way. No, you look in the mirror in your bathroom and you make changes. That's the simplicity of the Bible. We are to look in here, make changes that are needed. So did Josiah. But the thing is, is for generations, for many generations, Josiah's forefathers just didn't look in the mirror and decide not to make the adjustments and then repent. You know what they did? They smashed the mirror. So they wouldn't even have to even consider that as an option. They smashed the mirror of God's word. Someone put it in the temple, got dusty, it got in there with all the rubble. And they just live like, you know, if you tune God out of your life, then you can justify how you want to live. You can live any way you want because there's no standard. There's no standard. So here we have Josiah. He's heard the law, maybe for the first time in his life. He's shocked. He's appalled. He's mourning. He's grieving. So what does he do? He does something that is proper. He says, inquire. He talks to um, these men, Hilkiah and uh, Shaphan, he says, um, we need to inquire okay, of the Lord. For me. Now, I find that interesting. Inquire of the Lord for me is what he says in verse 13. Now, we don't know why he didn't go to Jeremiah. Maybe he wasn't in the area at the time. We don't know why he didn't say go to Zephaniah, but he, they went to uh, Huldah. And many of you are saying, who in the world is Huldah? Well, she's a prophetess. And I think I know why they went to Huldah. Uh, it's a proximity thing, I think, more than anything. But she also had a reputation. So follow along with me, 14 to 20, if you will. 14 to 20. So Hilkiah, the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Isaiah went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. I thought that was interesting. Um, meaning they lived near the temple. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her. She said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. Okay? What she's saying is accurate information. Verse 16, Thus says the Lord, this is what God says, okay, from the reading of this law. Behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, and even all the words of the book which the king of Judah had read. Because they, so the reason is given here, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath burns against this place and it shall not be quenched. Verse 18, but to the king of Judah, 
So there's a contrast here. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel, regarding the words which you have heard, because, and this is beautiful right here, this is lovely, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a, a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place. So they, uh, so they brought back word to the king. Uh, so I didn't have this in my notes, but I have to throw this in because it came to mind as I was reading this. Hezekiah, the good uh, king, the great-grandfather of Josiah, got the same word from God that the judgment wouldn't come in his day. The only difference was, I thought about this, with Hezekiah, he kind of had an arrogant attitude about it. He says, oh, well, I'm glad it's not going to happen to me. I'm glad the judgment isn't going to come on me. As long as it doesn't happen to me, I don't care what happens after I die. That was Hezekiah's attitude. With Josiah, I mean, he doesn't have that attitude, and you can just sense that. Um, but so, so we see judgment mixed with mercy here. We have judgment on the nation. God has to judge sin. I hope you know that about God. He has to judge sin. He cannot overlook it. But he's showing mercy really in a big way to Josiah. Think about what Josiah didn't see. He didn't see the three sieges of Nebuchadnezzar. The destruction of the temple and the city of um, and the city by Nebuzaradan. He didn't see the the deportation of the bulk of the inhabitants. He didn't see the calamities which happened to the remnant left. He didn't witness any of this. Um, but he actually died in battle prior to these things happening. So, uh, so God was right. The prophecy made by by Huldah the prophetess was accurate. He didn't have to see these things in his lifetime. What grace! And I just want to point out, you know, the God we serve hasn't changed. Like, do you notice the words here in verse nineteen? This is amazing. Nineteen is a verse to put on your refrigerator. Okay. You know, God knows when we cried out to him and when we weep before him and shows us mercy. You know, it's so easy to think that we serve a cold, harsh, cruel God. Sometimes we think our prayers really don't get beyond the ceiling. But this is proof that our prayers matter to God. He knows when we weep. He knows when you shed a tear. So take comfort in that. So the first point is discover the truth. The second is share the truth. Share the truth. And there's only uh, three verses that will cover the second point. It's 23, 1 to 3, verses 1 to 3 of the next chapter. All right. We're making good time, I think. We'll see. <laughs> read, read along with me. Follow along with me as I read 23, 1 to 3. Okay, so what does Josiah do next? He gets the word, the law. He inquires of the Lord. He gets the feedback that there has to be judgment, but he's going to be spared. So what's next? Okay. Well, he shares the truth. Uh, One to three. Then the king sent, and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of of Jerusalem with him, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. 
And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. So he read in the hearing the book of the law. The king stood by the pillar, made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord. And look at this covenant. It's impressive. To walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people entered into the covenant. So he gathers the leaders and everybody. They make a covenant. He's not hiding what he knows to be true. Right? You notice that? He inquires of Huldah, and he gets the message back from Huldah, but he doesn't keep it to himself. He gathers people around. And he says, listen, we need to form a team. We need to be on the same page with God. You know, are you with me? It reminds me of Nehemiah when, uh, when they were rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem about 200 years later. Um, so once we know the truth, it is our duty, your duty, my duty to not keep it in. We can't keep silent about it. Once we have that treasure, we can't hide it. So he makes a covenant to keep the words of the covenant. It reminds me of Joshua in uh, Joshua 24. He did the same thing. It sounds so, so similar. Remember verse 15, he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. Well, this is Josiah doing the same thing years later. And all the people joined him. And the truth is so serious to him that he just can't keep it to himself. So that's share the truth. Okay. The third and final point, but don't get too excited. This is a long point, um, is to, is to obey the truth. Um, that's a lifelong endeavor. That's not going to be an overnight thing that we do uh, quickly. That, that's a long pursuit. And, and I want to read a passage, a short one, just a few verses, out of Deuteronomy 12 to start this section, because this is no doubt in my mind where Josiah uh, got this motivation to do exactly what he's going to do, because I couldn't find it any clearer than in Deuteronomy. It, isn't that cool to think about that the Bible you and I are holding in our hands on our laps or whatever, it's the same, the exact same like Bible that they had in the Old Testament. Like the book that, the scroll that Josiah found in the temple is the same first five books of the Bible you have right in front of you. Nothing changes for thousands of years and we are accountable to the same truth. So let me read Deuteronomy 12, uh, 2 to 5, if you want to mark it down. This is where Reformation really begins, uh, based on what he has read in the law. You don't have to go there. Uh, Deuteronomy 12, and the point is that God is a jealous God. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars, burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. I think he read that passage because that's exactly what the next you know, many verses show him doing. We're going to uh, look at these real quickly. But um, he, he rounds up people to help him do this. It reminds me of a few things as I was reading this. One is uh, Moses. Remember Jethro, his father-in-law, came to him. I think it's Exodus 17, but don't quote me on that. And uh, Jethro comes to him and says, hey, you can't do this work by yourself. You cannot. It's way too much for you. And then it reminded me of Acts 6 when the first deacons were chosen. And um, the, the apostles said, we need some help for this work. We can't do it ourselves. 
we need to devote ourselves to the word and prayer, and we need help waiting on these tables. And uh, so he gets people together, and they go on a mission to really fulfill Deuteronomy 12 here. So um, I'm going to read maybe one or two verses at a time and comment for most of the rest of the time. Um, Verse 4. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal. Wow. For Asherah and for all the hosts of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. Okay, I just have to comment a little bit here. First of all, they had idols made to Baal. And you, sometimes you want to say, what in the world were they thinking? Didn't they read their Bible where, where Elijah challenged on Mount Carmel the 450 prophets of Baal? Like, don't they know that account? How could they set up pro- idols for Baal when they knew better? They knew the story of Elijah. Wow. And then Asherah, it talks about Asherah. This is uh, two renderings on this. One is mother god. It's a mother goddess, a mother mother idol. The other thing is it could be a, fertil- a fertility goddess. So mother or a fertility is involved here in this idol they made. And all the hosts of heaven, they were, I mean, they had idols to the stars and planets. Like, didn't they know their Bible? <laughs> um, so he started at the temple, and then he works his way out. Okay? Verse 5, he did away with the idolatrous uh, priests, whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the surrounding area of Jerusalem. All those who burn, uh, uh, also those who burn incense to Baal, to the sun, and to the moon, and to the constellations, and to all the hosts of heaven. Um, he didn't only remove the sinful things, he removed the people who were doing this. So a true reformation can't only deal with sinful things, it must also deal with sinful people. And the reason is, is if you don't deal with sinful people, guess what? They bring all that idolatry right back in. Verse uh, 6, he brought out the Asher from the house of the Lord. I mean, how could all these things, these things be right in the house of the Lord? That, it blows my mind. So he brought out the Asher from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it to dust and threw its dust on the graves of the common people. Why did he throw the dust on the graves of the common people? He wants to defile the idols. He wants to defile the idols so they won't be tempted to restore that idol worship again. Verse 7, he also broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes, which were in the house of the Lord, where the, where the women were weaving hangings for the Asherah. I read this and I said, oh, well, that's nice. There, there are women who are weaving in the temple. Check this out, okay? First of all, Sacred prostitution was an integral part of the worship of many of these pagan idols. We see it in the New Testament, in Corinth, in cities like that, Ephesus. The temple had actually become a brothel. Imagine that. Like, it, like you must have had an Elijah moment saying, am I the only one who cares about this stuff? How could we let it reach this point? So the word uh, translated hangings here the women were weaving hangings. 
likely refers to a fabric woven by idol worshipers for curtains behind which the ritual obscenities were practiced. So they're not just weaving nice little things like my wife might or other you know, women you know, weave nice little things. No, they were weaving curtains so the sinful acts uh, could go on behind these curtains that have their privacy right in the temple. What? How far can we stray, can they stray, when the word of God is ignored? That's the question here, folks. How far, how bad can it get? All right, so I have to move on. Verse 8, then he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense, from Geba to Beersheba, and he broke down the high places of the gates, which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the city gate. So there's no shame there. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not go up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they, they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. Um, no, no comment there, but uh, verse uh, 10 is going to make up for the lack of comment on 8 and 9. Uh, believe me, it's going to astound you. Okay, verse 10. He also defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire for Molech. Okay, so he defiled Topheth. We could easily read right over this and say, I don't know what it means. Let's move on, okay? I have to finish my reading for the day. (laughs) Topheth, check this out. Um, Topheth is where children burned I mean, uh, parents burned their children to Molech. They offered their children to Molech. It actually says in 1 Kings that Manasseh passed one of his sons through the fire of Molech. In 2 Chronicles, it says there were more than one. So, um, he, so, so at least two of his sons were burnt on, uh, you know, on Molech. And Molech was like a little, I don't know, statue that heat up the, the, the statue really, really hot from underneath. So it was like glowing and that lay their child on that. And the, now, yeah, this is not family conversation here, but that's what happened. Um, now listen to this. Um, the Valley of, of Hinnom was where the filth of the city was carried and perpetual fires were kept so that it would consume it. Uh, and it was, it was a type of hell, and we see some of this in the New Testament. But listen to this. The rabbis, and this is a quote from Clark, the rabbis say that Topheth derived its name from Toph. Okay, ready? Drum. Right, a drum. Because instruments of this kind were used to drown out the cries of the children that were, that were being put on the burning arms of Molech to be scorched to death. They played the drum so loud, and you you know see this maybe in Africa and things like that. Um, these tribes will bang the drums real loud. It was to drown out the sound of screaming babies. That's how bad the nation of Israel and Judah had gotten. They were doing this, and their king Manasseh did this. And I really don't know if it can get any worse than that. And I told Missy this, and think about this. I like to ponder these things. Okay, imagine burning two of your sons on Molech. You give 
him, if you will, the statue, the false god, two of your kids. Wouldn't it be difficult to walk away from that religion when you have so much invested? You've given two of your kids. How can you just walk away from it that easily? You have invested two of your, your offspring to this false god. You know, you're saying, I believe in this. This is the way we have to do this. How do you walk away from that easily? Uh, but thankfully, um, uh, King Manasseh did near the end of his life. Whew. So, moving along, uh, verse 11, he did away with the horses. I mean, this is everything. The horses which the kings of Judah had given to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the official, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. It's kind of a play on words there. He burnt the chariots of the sun they were worshiping with fire. Um, and according to commentators uh, Patterson and Austell, the utilization of the horse in the solar cult was widespread in the ancient Near East. And this is found in artifacts and inscriptions found in Assyria and Aramea. So they looked at what the nations around them were doing. They said, hey, let's, let's, let's pull that practice from them, this practice from these people. And they were just, and we know the law well enough, don't we, that I mean, God says, don't do what the nations around you do. Knock it off. Don't do that. And yet, that's exactly what they did. Verse 12, the altars which are on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which, which Manasseh had made uh, prior to his conversion, had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, the king broke down, and he smashed them there and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. You know, he didn't care who made these altars. This was his beloved grandfather, he says, you know, I don't care if it's my father, my grandfather. These have to go. There wasn't, uh, remember, uh, was it Luke 14 where Jesus said, you know, if you love your family more than me, then you're not worthy to be called my disciple. Verse 13, the high places which were before Jerusalem, which were on the right of the Mount of Destruction, Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Asherah, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and from Milcon, the abomination of the sons of Ammon, the king defiled. You know, I was just saying a minute ago, they pulled these abominations from all these nations around them and wanted to be like them. The Mount of Corruption, by the way, it says Mount of Destruction, I believe, in some versions. This is interesting. I did a little digging on this because I didn't understand why in the world is it called the Mount of Corruption? You know what it is? It's, there are three peaks on the Mount of Olives. I've never been there, but this is what I'm told. In fact, has anybody ever been to the Mount of Olives? So you know this better than I do. I'm jealous. I wish I could have gone with you. But there are three peaks on the Mount of Olives, and one of them they call the Mount of Corruption because that's where Solomon's wives set up all their false idols. He didn't want them right near, near Jerusalem as much, but he says, no, you can build and put your idols up on this mountain. Um, and he did this for his wives. Uh, Solomon did, and uh, that was... Uh, sinful, obviously. Verse 14, he broke in pieces the sacred pillars, cut down the ashram, filled their places with human bones. A quick note on this. Why did he fill their places with human bones? They took out these idols and there was a hole in the ground. And they, they, they defiled um, the holes where the idols stood with, with, um, with human flesh, with the ashes 
of uh, humans so they wouldn't rebuild, like I said before. So uh, he was doing everything right as far as trying to get that whole thought process away from them. 15, furthermore, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made, even that altar and the high place he broke down. Then he demolished its stones, ground them to dust, and burned the asher. This is not a quick project. They're smashing these things to dust. It's a lot of work. And he had, and he had, and he had helpers. But I found um, a casual reading. In fact, uh, one of my uh, later reading on my notes here, I, it just hit me. This description, it says the pronoun he. It uses the word he more than they. Just interesting. He was involved in it. He did a lot of the work himself. I mean, he was so passionate about this. So we say uh, we see that in 15, he um, the altar at Bethel, he destroyed uh, Bethel. And you guys who have been to Israel know that's or maybe 12 miles north of Jerusalem. So he's leaving Jerusalem, and now he's now he's on a missions trip to uh, Bethel, which is the southern part of Israel. It's, it's just over the border into Israel, if you look at a Bible map. So he's leaving Jerusalem, he, he, he's leaving Judah, he's going up to Israel now. Um, and by the way, uh, we say, well, how could that be possible? Well, the Assyrians were weak in the days of Josiah, and they were concerned about other things at this time. So he could do that. He's not done there, by the way. Verse 16, now, now this is interesting. Uh, now when Josiah turned, he saw the graves that were there on the mountain and he sent and took the bones from the graves and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these things. Then he said, what is this monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, it is the grave of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things, which you have done against the altar of, of Bethel. He said, let him alone, let no one disturb his bones. So they left his bones undisturbed with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Let me tell you what's going on here. This is fascinating. I love fulfilled prophecy in the Bible. 300 years before this happened, that Josiah was destroying um, these graves, these, these altars here in Bethel, um, there was a prophet, a man of God who came and prophesied to the altar, by the way. And he, and he prophesied, first of all, there would be a king named Josiah. 300 years before Josiah was even born. He said, and this is uh, found at 1 Kings 13, 1-2. It's a great cross-reference. 1 Kings 13, 1-2. So there's a man of God who comes out. He predicts that uh, this is exactly what will take place, and it will be done by a man named uh, Josiah. And um, then Josiah was careful to honor this gravestone um, that was, um, uh, this gravestone was the grave for the prophet who made that prophesy to the altar. And he didn't uh, disturb that grave. Okay, verse 19. Then Josiah also removed all the houses of the high places, which are in the cities of Samaria. So, so he's way up north now. He's moving more and more. Uh, to the north, which the kings of Israel had made provoking the Lord, and he did to them just as he had done in Bethel. Which is back in 15, in verse 15. And all the priests of the high places who were there, he slaughtered on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. So all the priests of the high places who were there, he slaughtered. Notice he didn't go halfway here. Um, 
This brought me back to um, a young man in our youth group um, many, many years ago, um, around the time of Moses. No, I'm kidding. Um, we, uh, we had a young man in our youth group who I remember going on a retreat up to Maine, and he was the former captain of a high school football team that I had gone to, and he was a year or two older than me, and, he, and I knew him, and I knew him in high school. He was a partier. He didn't care. He loved to drink and party and no reservations. He didn't care. And um, I don't know the course of events, but he became a believer. And it's kind of like when, when Saul became a believer, it became Paul, and these people are saying, are you really a believer? Well, that's kind of what we were thinking. Are you really a believer? And I remember we went on a college and career retreat, and he brought this big, nice plaque of a Budweiser logo. I actually have a picture of this at home somewhere. He brought this plaque. Russ, I don't know if you remember this. And he brought this plaque, and he burned it in the uh, fireplace at the house we were staying at. And it was just a, uh, it was a testament to, that was my life I used to live. Now I'm going to live this way for the Lord. And he's still, as far as I know, walking really, really faithfully with God. I'm so thankful to hear that. But he, so just the, um, the no going back, the no reservations kind of Christianity is what we're talking about. And Josiah lived for God that same way. Uh, the contrast to that is Saul. Remember Saul? He sent to kill, uh, to, uh, kill Agag and uh, the Amalekites. And he says, all right, Samuel, I did the job. What's next? He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's this bleeding of the sheep I hear? I told you to kill all the inhabitants, sheep, the oxen. What's the bleeding of the sheep I hear, you know, in the background? He says, well, we save them for sacrifice to God. You know what? That's partial disobedience or partial obedience. Um, and so that's the contrast with Josiah. He went all out. He wanted to cleanse wicked Judah as well as Israel of all this idol worship, all these false idols. And so it is really with the process of sanctification in our lives. It's the same. You can't. Years ago, there was a book by Robert Munger called My Heart, Christ's Home. Does anybody remember that? Raise your hand if you remember. All right. A few people. Um, and what it is, it, it looks at the human life as a house. And somebody walks into the house, and there's an you know, awful smell when they walk into this house. And the house looks beautiful. It's all you know, clean and kept up. And they, and they can't get over it. This smell is horrible. Well, finally, they open one closet, and there's just garbage in there, just smelly stuff in this closet. And that's putrefying the whole house. The point I'm trying to make here, and that Robert Munger was making in that book, was you know, sanctification process, you can't pick and choose. It's all or nothing. When you live for the Lord, it's all or nothing. You can't say, well, okay, God can have this part of my life, that part, of, but I, you know what? He's not getting this part of the life. You know, I hold that way too dear. And so it is with Josiah. Okay, verse 21 and on, um, he, he reinstitutes the Passover, um, which I'm ashamed of some of the commentators of the Bible. They, I don't know what Bible they're reading, but some said, well, this is the first Passover since the judges. No, Hezekiah did you know, keep the Passover. 
But the only thing I would say is he didn't keep it to the extent that, that Josiah did. And he also, he held it in the second month of the year instead of the first month, which was prescribed in the law. But he did, uh, he did bring back the Passover. But anyway, that's just a free, free sideline. So 21 uh, to 23, the king commanded all the people saying, celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it's written in the book of the covenant. Surely such a Passover had not been celebrated from the days of the judgment. Now, the commentators went right along with this and said, see, it hadn't been you know, done since the day of Judges, but um, such a Passover, you have to read those words, such a Passover. Hezekiah did hold one, but it wasn't to this extent. All right. Um, so, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah, but in the 18th year of King Josiah, the Passover was, was observed to the Lord in Jerusalem. You know, notice it's held the same year that they're doing all this destruction of the idols. Man, they had a busy year, very busy year. And Josiah couldn't command heart obedience. We can't change people's hearts, but he did institute it as a national holiday. He brought it back for those who were willing to worship, you know, worship God in this way. Um, the neglect of the Passover reminds me that they had neglected to remember the redemption that God gave them in the Exodus. It's just like that never happened. It didn't, it didn't matter. It's kind of like us not celebrating communion for years, decades, um, because we don't really think that highly of the redemption that Christ bought for us on the cross. So it's very much like that. It wasn't important to them. Oh, but now we're coming near the end of what Josiah does here. He's not done. Verse 24. Moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists, uh, which is contact with the dead, and the teraphim, which are the household idols, the idols and, and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah um, and in Jerusalem, that he might confirm the words of the law, which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. He keeps on going back to the law. And this is where, as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, I think he had some portion of Leviticus because this is where it says, uh, don't get involved with mediums and spiritists and teraphim. So I, and I couldn't find that in Deuteronomy. So I think that's why he did have more than just Deuteronomy. Uh, before him, and I love this, uh, 25, before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might which that, that came right out of Deuteronomy 6.5, by the way. According to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. And you read the history of the kings of Judah, and that's true, because as soon as he's gone off the scene, they go into Babylonian captivity. So uh, Huldah, the prophetess, was right. The wicked nation had to be judged. He did it. Um, now... The sad end of the story. Uh, Josiah dies at the age of 39. Young guy. In fact, the older you get, the younger that is. But 39, Josiah died. And I don't want to get into the details of this, but he was killed by Pharaoh Nico, who came up. And I think Tim touched on this a little bit last week. Pharaoh Nico from Egypt came up, and he was joining forces with Assyria. And Josiah faced him, and... If you want to read something really intriguing, if you want to do some digging into the Bible, and I shared this with Missy, read this account in 2 Chronicles. 
35, 20 to 27. There's something in there that I do not understand. Um, and it's very intriguing. But anyway, uh, Josiah died in a battle. Uh, he got shot and he was mortally wounded and he, uh, very sad, sad end to his life. So that in a sermon is Josiah's life. If you came in here this morning not knowing about Josiah, I hope you learned something about him this morning. So what's the so what of this account? You know, we're not to read the book of Daniel and say, okay, dare to be a Daniel, because there's more, much more to it than dare to be a Daniel or dare to be a Josiah. There's much more to it than that. A transformed life is a radically different life. Yes, it's quite rare. Like, think about it right now while you're seated here. Do you know of that many lives who have really kept the faith for many years, who have been transformed like you never saw coming, and they're staying faithful. It's very rare. I'm reminded of Pastor Terry's brother when he came to do that conference years ago. He pointed us to the fact that the church at Ephesus was on fire for the Lord at the time that Paul wrote to that church. And then you get to Revelation. It talks about the church at Ephesus, one of the seven letters uh, to the churches. And it said they left their first love. And that was over a span of like 40 years. So a transformed life is a rare thing. What's the source of such a radical life that we see in King Josiah? There's only one thing you can, you can attribute that to. God's word. A fear of God's word. What value does the mirror of God's word okay, have in our lives? When you look into the Bible like a mirror and you see what it says... What do you do with it? Do you ignore it? Do you smash the mirror? Do we tremble at God's word? Isaiah 66 says to this one, God says, to this one I will look. He or she who is contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. There's nothing more important than trembling at the word of God. And remember, all of the word of God, even the Old Testament, all points to Jesus. And this is from Luke Luke 24 says that the whole Bible, the law, law, and the prophets all are really pointing to Jesus. So what do we do with Jesus the Messiah, who God sent to be our sin bearer? That's, that's so important. Are you ashamed of him? Are you too busy for him? Are we really relying on him? Do we truly acknowledge that he is Lord and Master? He owns us. Do we truly live like that? We can say it easily, but do we live like that? Do we get excited when we discover the truth like Josiah did? Do we get excited like, man, I found this passage. Check this out. Man, I have to dig and, and inquire of the Lord into that like Josiah did. Man, I have to research that. Um, do we share it with others? And then do we truly obey it in our life? Listen, uh, Josiah came close to living a perfect life that we know in Scripture. Now, he was a sinner, and don't take that the wrong way. He was a sinner. He sinned. But there are few characters in the Bible who there's really not spoken of that person that there's sin in their life. There's a few characters like that. I think Josiah is one of them, possibly. But even if he lived a perfect life, well, guess what? He couldn't pay for our sins. He was not the Messiah. The one who lived a perfect life 
is the one who has the credentials to sit on the throne of David, and that's Jesus Christ. Uh, Josiah's final assessment from from, uh, God was that he followed the Lord with all his heart, soul, and might. What will God's final assessment of your life and mine be someday? When we have to give an account, because everyone, as sure as you're sitting here, we all have to give an account. And I hope that resounds in your heart as it does with me a lot. That's important. There's nothing more important than to give an account to God, um, like Paul said, that we might be find, found blameless in him. So I pray that this was edifying to you. Let's uh, close in prayer and we'll close with a final song. Dear Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the pattern, the example. Uh, Lord, there's so many applications from the life of Josiah. May we love your word to the same extent that he did. The the world was crazy around him. It made no sense. There was chaos. There was idol worship. And so it is with us. We live in a chaotic world with idols, with pagan rituals, uh, shedding of innocent blood. Lord, not much has changed because the human heart doesn't change. May we be faithful to you, Lord, in it all, so that someday we may hear those incredible words Faithful servant, you may enter into my kingdom. May we be faithful. We pray this in Christ's name for his sake. Amen.